Amen. And we praise the Lord for the worship team and all the gifts that God has given to us as a church so we could be led to know Christ, to worship, praise, adore Him as we were just singing about. I do want to mention two other things before going to the Word this morning. One is, uh, we had the elders up here earlier, and what a great seamless transition it has been to the side of the brothers uh, who were elders here at FBC and joining together our MABC and FBC elders has just been a a joy. And I, I, I am so grateful to the Lord for that and for those brothers. I also wanted to mention that I forgot to mention the five by five by five. So how many of you are up to date, which means that you should have read up to Mark chapter 10 a few hands are going up. Some of you are like chapter nine and a half. I don't know. You know. So starting tomorrow, so this week, we're supposed to read Mark 11 through 15. And that's not too many chapters, right? So if you just are starting out, so that's a reading plan that we want the whole church to be involved in. It's easy for the youth, the children, even if they want to read one chapter a day, just weekdays. And that gives you time to catch up if you have not read. Um, it also is something that we're trying to do in terms of kind of connecting and engaging folks and so you could check out our website there is a pastor's blog on there where I'm trying to write at least each week one article or an encouragement coming from our reading for that week and so hopefully you can take a look at that the other elders are also going to participate with videos and articles so keep that in mind and uh, catch up and let's be on the same page together and be encouraged by the word let's pray as we approach God's truth this morning Father, we come before you because you are worthy. And we know that whether we come here in this local church with a new name uh, or any church across the nations that gathers in Jesus' name, we are the bride of Christ. We belong to you. The reason we are here is you. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to know that deeply and truly. And as we enter into a study of your word, as we hear your word proclaimed to us now, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive, that we might know you, know your word, desire you, obey you, and shine the light of Christ in this dark world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but sometimes you hear people say something like, close your eyes and visualize it. Okay. If you want to achieve a certain goal, you're going after a certain uh, ambition, they say just close your eyes. First, you want to visualize yourself doing it. Okay. Stop and imagine yourself and, and imagine yourself going step by step through the process. Picture yourself doing what needs to get done and doing it well. And that will help you to achieve the goal that you set out for. So, for example, I've heard that some, maybe, uh, professional athletes do this visualizing, right? So, NBA players, maybe as they're getting ready for their games, they're visualizing themselves in the seventh game of the NBA finals with the clock ticking down by, you know, one point. And they visualize themselves leaning back, taking the final shot, and they watch the ball go through the net, and they score the winning shot. Visualize it. See, do you guys ever do this? No one wants to admit it. 
Some say this kind of visualization can help you achieve your goals. I don't know. I'm not sure. Maybe. I'm not here to talk about that kind of visualization, though. But here's what I find interesting. I find it interesting that the scriptures, the Bible, does something similar to that. Often in the Bible, there is a picture painted of our future reality, and it helps us to strive after that reality here and now. An example that comes to mind, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, we're told that when Jesus appears, we are going to be like him. And so John then continues, he says, if you know you're going to be like him, you know you're going to be pure and sanctified like Jesus himself, then those who know that start today purifying themselves, right? We start today wanting to seek after that sanctification that we know has already been bought for us by Christ. Visualize it, picture it, and then pursue it. Sometimes the scriptures simply say, they put it in a different way. The scriptures say, this is who you are in Christ. Now live like it. You're a new creation in Christ. You're a new man in Christ. You're, you have a new life in Christ. You are a citizen not of this earth, but of heaven because of Christ. And if those things are true, picture those things and live like those things are true. Picture it, then pursue it. Theologically, we call this the indicative imperative. We're told what Christ has already done in us, what he's already made us, what we already are because of him, and now we're called to be who we are in Christ. Well, this is our very first Sunday as the Mount Bible Church. And it's exciting, isn't it? Exciting? Okay, some nods, that's good. Some nerves, I'm sure. Maybe I have some of those. Some questions, no doubt. Will this work? I, I bet there are people from the outside, uh, people from the inside that are watching and they are wondering, is it even really possible? Can this be done well? Where you have two different local churches with really different backgrounds come together to be one and not just in name, because that's not what we want, but to be one in spirit, in mission, in ministry. Is it even possible? This morning, I want us to look to the scriptures to visualize it. I want us to see what picture the scriptures paint for us of just this kind of coming together. Just this kind of, of unity. We're going to take a look at the passage from which our new church gets its name. The, the passage that inspired the concept of the mount as our name. A passage that is deeper than we can imagine, but it's also simple enough for children to understand. It is a, it is a passage that actually starts with a vision. And then it ends with a call to pursue that vision. Are you ready for this journey? Are you ready not only to delve into the word, but to delve into life together as the Mount Bible Church? I hope so. Would you open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 2? 
Isaiah chapter 2. We're going to look at the first five verses. Now, I ask you that if you don't have your Bibles with you, which we hope you will bring your Bibles with you, but if you don't have your Bibles with you, there should be Bibles in underneath the chair in front of you. You can take a look there, take one out, open it up. Even though it's going to be projected, we want you to open up your Bibles and we want you to keep them open. And I know, I know when Roger preaches, he'll say you can swipe, you know, so you have it on your phone. No, no, no. I like old school. I want to hear the pages ruffle. So please ruffle those pages and turn to Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, page 567, 567 in the Sanctuary Bibles. And so you can open up there. I'm hearing pages. That's good. I like that. Let's hear from God's word. Here's what the word of God says. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen? May God bless the reading of his word. We're going to start with the vision that God lays out for Isaiah here. And then we are going to see three things. You can turn to your bulletins on the back. There's a brief outline there. We're going to see purpose, provision, Sunday together. I'm sorry. Vision, and then purpose, provision, and provocation. Let's start with the vision. Look at verses 1 and 2 in your scriptures. Like I said, how often the scriptures grant us pictures and images in order to help us understand what God is trying to communicate to us. For example, we read in the book of Revelation a description of heaven, and we are told that heaven has what? Pearly gates and golden roads or golden streets. Now look, I don't think that that is necessarily literally what we're going to find in heaven. I think that what God is going to build with is going to be a lot better than gold and pearls. Okay. That, that the point isn't that it's going to be those specific materials. The point, though, is that there is going to be glory, riches. In that culture, pearls and gold meant wealth and power and splendor. And so that's the picture the Lord gives to us. I, I think that if we actually thought about building with gold, we'd be thinking about some pretty pretentious people today. We don't want paved with gold. We, we just want the idea that there's no lack, no poverty, no poverty of any kind. Just glorious provision. Well, take a look at verse 1 in our passage. Let's get, look at the picture that God is painting for us. Notice, by the way, first that, that Isaiah saw the word. 
That's not common language even in the prophets. There's something being communicated to us that there is a vision that is being unveiled to Isaiah the prophet and he tells us what he saw in verse 2. And here's what he sees. He sees the mountain of the Lord. Do you see that there in the text? The mountain of the Lord and on top of the mountain of the Lord is the house of the Lord or the temple of the Lord. But there's more to this picture if you look at it carefully because if you're paying attention, this mountain is suddenly appearing and it is suddenly becoming the highest mountain. It is lifted above all other mountains, we're told, all other hills that were surrounding it. And there's something even more. Take a look at verses 1 and 2 and see that there is a long, winding caravan of all nations and many peoples and they are flowing to that very mountain. The mountain of Yahweh. The mountain that has now been established is above every other mountain and they are flowing to it, flowing up to it. There's this, like I said, a winding road of people that are gathering there. Being from Southern California, honestly, I just couldn't help but picture traffic on the way up to like Dodger Stadium or something. I think the only difference is there was no road rage in Isaiah's vision, so no honking or anything. Now look, in the ancient world, these kinds of mountains were very important. Mountains and those things that were high and lifted, many religions boasted of their mountains. And they boasted of their gods that were connected to those mountains, that were connected to this concept of loftiness and the mystery that often come with mountains. You've probably heard of at least one of those mountains. The most famous of all is probably Mount Olympus, where the Greek gods and goddesses would be found. But it wasn't in the ancient world just actual mountains that were uh, considered a place that was holy. See, the people would even build what are called ziggurats, These were large towers that were thought to reach into the heavens where the gods were. Those were their places of worship. One author called a ziggurat, he said, quote, a place that visually intersected with the heavenly realm. And we see these ziggurats even in the Bible, for example, the Tower of Babel, which was likely one. People worshipped on these mountains. They worshipped at these ziggurats. It was very common among the nations, but I want you to notice as you're looking at the text what we see in this vision. Because it's all of the nations coming to one mountain. One mountain, the mountain of Yahweh. Just understand what the Lord is communicating through this vision that the people of an ancient world would have well understood. The mountain of Yahweh, which represents the worship of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, is revealed as the only mountain that matters and the only mountain that remains. And it towers over all. And not only does it tower over all, but we notice that it is attractive to the peoples of the world and the impression that we get from this text is that the peoples of the world are leaving whatever else they have ever known, whatever else they have ever worshipped and they are coming now to Yahweh, the God of Jacob because he is the only true living God. We can hear some amens if you want, that's okay. He is the only true living God. We're going to see more of this in the next few verses. But the the mountain is the place of worship, the place of truth. 
And now it has become the place of gathering for those who want truth and they want to worship. That's the vision. What about the purpose? Look at verse 3. What's the purpose of this flowing to the mountain of the Lord? What's this picture prophecy trying to, to tell us about purpose? Well, the nations are coming in droves. They're flowing upward, which, by the way, is interesting. The language flow usually means downward, but they're flowing upward now to this mountain. Two things would stand out for those who are astute Old Testament thinkers or students of the Old Testament. First, this reminds us of the promise and the covenant that God had made with Abraham in Genesis 12. If you're familiar with that, we're told there that all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. We call it the Abrahamic covenant, and what we're seeing here is really a fulfillment of that because all the nations are coming to the mountain of the God of Jacob, the God of Abraham. That was always God's plan, that all the nations would come and receive the blessing somehow through Abraham's seed. But a closely related theme in the scriptures comes right before Genesis 12. In Genesis 11, and already alluded to it, it's the story of the Tower of Babel. You see, beloved, there was a previous togetherness and oneness in the scriptures. Here's what we're told in Genesis 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. There's only one people, so to speak. But what did they unite in? What was their unity for? I think you know the story. Instead of coming together to obey God, instead of coming together at the foot of, of the mountain of God to worship God, they came together, and the text tells us this, they came together to build a tower that went into heaven so they could make a name for themselves, not for God, not out of worship. They did it for pride, for glory. Instead of giving glory to God, they wanted to create glory for themselves. But beloved, that really is a picture of all of us, isn't it? It's a picture of what happened to humanity after the fall. It's a picture of us with our hearts turned inward. It's a picture of us wanting to worship the way we want to worship, who we want to worship, when we want to worship. Me, me, me. What does God do? In the story of Babel, he confuses their tongues and he divides them and he disperses them, right? They're spread out, they're alienated, they're divided, which is a really good description of the world that we live in. But here though, in Isaiah's vision, we see the very reverse of Babel. Do you see that? They aren't building their own mountain to the gods anymore. They're not dispersed any longer. They have left behind all of those things. And they are now coming back together in order to give glory to the only God whose mountain overshadows all others. They realize they can't build their own. They must go to God's. I like the way one scholar put it. He said, the mount is thus to serve as a unifying force for the world. It is to be a reversal of the dispersion. 
At the city of confusion, Babel, mankind was dispersed. So at the city of peace, Jerusalem, mankind is to be united. Beloved, the mount brings unity. And that's what we want to see. There's more. What is it that's drawing the nations to this mountain? What is really the purpose? What is so attractive that is making them leave everything they've ever known behind and come and travel and pilgrimage to this mountain? What's capturing their attention, their hearts, and their minds? Look at verse 3. The nations tell us. They tell us with what they're saying to one another, with their invitation. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Why? That he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Beloved, there is an awakening that we're seeing here. An awareness that truth is found only in Yahweh. That's it. There's an awareness that we need to be instructed by him. We need to be taught by him that our thinking without God is messed up. That our ability to reason is flawed and fallen and futile. And that no, it is not only how we feel that makes right. Not, not only uh, how we want to do things that is, is how we ought to do them. Truth is not relative. Not all religions and philosophies are not equal. No, there is one way, one real teacher, one real God. And he is to be found at the mountain of the Lord. And we are to hear from him and submit to him. That's what the mount means. It's the mountain of the Lord that we come to hear from him and worship him and grow and understand. And what can we see, by the way, from those who are coming? Look at it carefully. They have a desire for the word of God. They're, they're thirsting for truth. There's something internal that's driving them. Let me ask you to stop and reflect for a moment. Is that what's driving you? They know that left to their own devices, left to their own and what they'd been getting before, all they have is emptiness. But to come to the mount means to leave all other gods behind. Because we know, like Peter the disciple, that you, Lord, and only you, Lord, have the words to eternal life. Is that why you come? Do you hunger and thirst for the word of God? Do you long to know him deeply? Do you know that only in his word is found life? Do you see the vision? This is what Isaiah is laying out. Go to where his word is. And, th and those who come for instruction, by the way, they don't simply come to seek knowledge. Look at the way he, he lays it out. They, they want their lives transformed. Middle of verse 3, do you see it there? He says, not just that he may teach us his ways, but they also add to that cry. They say that we may walk in his paths. It's not learning for learning's sake. It's learning for living. Is that why you come to church? Is that why you're here to receive? To be reoriented? To have our minds reshaped by the word of God? 
by the preaching of his word, to receive his grace yet again, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and the renewing of our hearts. We know and we really believe that God's ways are better, that God's ways are wiser, and that God's word is life. One author put it this way. He said, this is true knowledge. A grasp of truth issuing in redirection of life. Let me add this to that statement. Beloved, all good theology leads to godly living. All good theology. It, is, it never ends in the mind, but always changes our hearts. That's why we come. That God may change our hearts. Another author pointed out something else I think that's important in this text. And you can see it. He said that you can see that the nations are truly believing. That the peoples gathering together have genuine faith by one thing in this text. He says you see it because they want others to come along with them. Do you notice that? Come. Come, let us go up. They're inviting others. They're not keeping it to themselves. They're, 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 they found the answer to life and they don't want to just hold on to it. They, they want everybody to know it. And I imagine that this is why those that Jesus healed, and then of course he said, by the way, don't tell anybody. You know those passages in the Gospels? He heals them, does some glorious work, and he says, don't tell anybody. What's the first thing they do? Tell somebody. They go out and they declare it and they tell everybody. If you guys know the singer Don Francisco, he had a song, Gotta Tell Somebody. It was, it was all about, they have to tell someone. You have to declare it as God is working in you. Now, they were disobedient to Jesus, but that's a different story. Okay. Now, let me ask you this question. And I want you to think carefully about it. Do you believe that the gospel is true? Please don't answer quickly. Don't even answer in your hearts quickly. I want you to ask yourself truly the question, do you believe that the gospel, the good news of Christ is true and it's real and it is reality and that the work of Christ on the cross is the only hope for the world? And it comes from the grace of the God of the Bible, Father, Spirit, Son, alone. And if you really believe that, and if you think that is reality, now I want you to ask yourself the next question. When was the last time you told someone about it? Do you tell others? Do you want them to know? Do you invite them to come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to Zion, to Christ. And if they come, what are they going to find? What do they find by coming to the mountain of the Lord? That's what we look at in, next in our passage. They find provision. Look at verse 4. What's the provision? At the mountain of the Lord... And don't miss this, they find the Lord himself. He's there. He's present with them and among them. And there's a, a Hebrew word that means that God is with us, and you know the word well, Emmanuel. God is with us. And notice what he provides as you look through that text there. Peace. 
true peace. He reigns on this mountain. The Lord reigns. He is the Prince of Peace. And as one author put it, there is a change, notice this, in the the means of war and the practice of war and the mentality of war. There is no more war. And I think that's true externally, but also internally. That's the picture that's being painted. Why is there no more war and conflict? Because there is no more need for war. War, beloved, comes from sin in our hearts as our own. But there is a faithful and righteous judge who has intervened in this picture, who leads toward justice and who is there. And so the weapons of war, notice that in the text, are turned into instruments of life. Tools once used to kill and to maim are now actually turned into farming tools and farming utensils used to create sustenance for life. Swords become plowshares, spears become pruning hooks. It's like saying for us today, tanks become tractors. How can this be? So I remember way back in my senior year in high school, my kids would say, you can remember that far back? Yeah. We were given a project, and it was to create our own utopia. And we were told, and I don't know if it was econ or government class or whatever they taught, and we were told, here's the project. You are getting into Elon Musk. No, he wasn't around at the time. You're going to get into a spaceship, SpaceX, and you're going to go off to another planet with a group of human beings. And you get to start your own new world, your own new nation, and you get to decide what you take with you and what you leave behind, what you keep the same and what you change. And the group that I was in, well, we decided that we still thought it was good to maintain some weapons. We thought it was necessary. Someone from another group questioned that and said, Why? I mean, if you're going to go start all over again, start fresh on a new planet, why in the world would you bring along weapons that could be used to harm people and to hurt people? And and you know what? That's not a bad question. Now, I think as my high school self, I thought it was a bad question. My arrogance, I was like, well, how dare you ask that question? But, But I remember responding to the question, saying this. I wish we could leave behind things like guns and weapons. But the one thing that we can't leave behind in this project, humans, <laughs> they're coming with us, right? And wherever they are, comes with them fallenness, comes with them selfishness and hatred and turmoil and confusion and conflict and all those things. And so we're going to need protection from humans. In other words, unless beloved human nature changes, there cannot be true, lasting peace. And that's true internationally, and it's true nationally, and it's true intergalactically, and wherever else you want to look. What we're seeing in Isaiah's passage, and you can look at it there in verse 4, in this vision given by God, is human nature being changed by God. In verse 4, he says, neither shall they learn war anymore. Why? How? 
How can this be? Because they are now instructed by the Lord himself. He is writing on their hearts. It is the promise of the new covenant. He is regenerating them. He is causing them to be born again, fresh, new, a new creation. It's the gospel. The hearts are changed. Their natures are changed. Everything changed by the God who reigns and whose word is truth. At the mount, we find transformation. That's where the peace comes from. That's the picture that the prophet received and shared with his people. A vision of nations coming to learn and worship. A vision of perfect peace poured out because sinful man is being changed and renewed and sanctified. In his time, it was a, it was a vision of a time in the future. The prophet doesn't stop there, though. There's one more element to this vision that he wants to communicate. Purpose, provision, and I said provocation. Look at verse 5. I don't know if you're familiar with Romans 11, but in Romans 11, Paul talks about magnifying his ministry. He was a Jew. He wanted to magnify his ministry to the Gentiles. If you remember that. And he says that he wants to magnify his ministry to the Gentiles because he thought that by magnifying his ministry to the Gentiles, that he could make his own people jealous that they might turn to Jesus too. That if these Gentiles are the ones who are receiving the promises that had been made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, then maybe those that ethnically were part of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob could now be caused to turn to Christ too. In some ways, I think that's exactly what Isaiah is saying in verse 5. Because he turns from describing the vision to applying it. He plays off of the language of the Gentile pilgrims on their way up to the mountain of the Lord saying, come, let us go up. And now he turns to the Jewish people, his people. And he says, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord that we already have, right? They had it. Isaiah is saying, we have what the nations need. We know Yahweh. We have his word. They're going to come to that. That word is for everybody. And if that's true, then let us not take it for granted today. Let us take advantage of the privilege that we have of knowing this truth. Let us walk in the light. Let us live righteously now, something they were not doing Isaiah is provoking the people to action. If the nations who are far off get to come and benefit from the word of God, if they get to benefit from the seed of Abraham, then we too, let's not be left behind. Provocation. I want to step back though now and reflect for a moment. Because we should be feeling this provocation as well. It's not just for the people at Isaiah's time. What was Isaiah's vision really about? He was looking forward to a time, but when would the nations come to the mountain of the Lord and receive his word? Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, here's what we read. Paul's writing, he's just, by the way, written about elders and deacons in the church, and so now he says this to Timothy. He says, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the, now listen to the language, household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. 
that the church, the local church, the body of believers is to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. A pillar lifts it up and makes it known. Makes it visible. But look at verse 16. It continues. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Who is this about? It's about Jesus. He is the mount. Just like the mountain of the Lord in Isaiah 2 is a vision of God's truth being lifted up for all to see and come to, the church, Christ's church, with Christ as our head, established by the gospel itself, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, we are called a temple of God. There's more. The church, the gathering of broken sinners, saved by grace alone. The church... Christ bought, grace saturated, world fill, word filled gathering who have trusted in the finished work of Jesus and not our own righteousness. That church, like the mountain of the Lord, is lifting up the truth and making it known. Are we? The love that we have for each other. The fact that we can come together with people of all ages, all ethnic groups, all walks of life, and know that we have more in common because of Jesus than even with our own biological families. That church declares to the world something about our Savior and his ways and his good news. They will know that we belong to him by our love for one another. We will make Jesus known by how we do church. The nations are watching. What will they see? Will they want to come? Right? And who is the Savior that we're trying to make known to them? Who is this Jesus? The vision that Isaiah had had these people that were coming to be instructed by the Lord, right? They wanted the word. They wanted the way to life. They, they wanted the truth. Do you hear the language, beloved? Because Jesus is what? The way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. The vision of, the coming, of them coming to the mountain is a vision of people coming to Christ. A vision of what happens at Pentecost when the Spirit is poured out and people of all nations hear the Word of God proclaimed in their language and the Lord creates in that moment a multinational body with Him at the head of those transformed by grace. Amen? Jesus is the truth that the whole world needs, isn't He? And we as His church have the privilege and honor and high calling of making him known to the ends of the earth and lifting him up for all to see. So what is the vision for us this morning? A church filled with those who have had our eyes open to the reality that God is God and we are not. A church filled with those who have come to Jesus because we know that we are tired and weary and broken and sinful, and he promises to give us rest. A church filled with those who not only come to Jesus, but invite others to come 
a church who lifts up the truth, proclaims the gospel without compromise, and loves the broken with deep compassion, like our head and Savior, Jesus Christ. A vision of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because we've tasted of the grace of God and the Spirit is at work in us. Beloved, this is the vision. Let's pursue it. This is the vision. Let us be provoked to action. We have what the world needs. Come, let us go up to the mount to worship, to learn, to live, and to make known the Lord of the mount. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we praise and worship and adore you for you are the one with answers to life. You are the only one with the words of eternal life. We come to hear, to receive, to speak to us. Raise up this church, Lord, to follow the head, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be like the mountain of the Lord, a a place where people can come to receive your word, to hear of the riches of the glory of your grace, to hear of the goodness and the kindness and mercy of God. Come, let us go up to the mount. And I pray that we would invite and call on others to come because what we have, we want them to have too. Pour out your spirit upon us, Lord, and send us forth to do what you have called us to do, for we are yours in Jesus. Amen.